News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You may have heard about this bizarre story out of the state of Michigan over the last 24 hours. 13 people have been arrested for, among other things, allegedly planning to kidnap the governor and try to incite some kind of civil war. Joining us now for more on this is CBS crime analyst Paul Violas. Paul, good morning. Good morning, Simi. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. But I tell you, this story is really something. Like, and it was. It sounds like it was quite extensive. There was an F- FBI was involved. Yeah, you, you know what? Our level of dysfunction just keeps growing and growing by the day. Uh, I, I can tell you that this is nothing new. This is something that in the United States we have over 1,000 such groups as the ones that you're seeing here called the Wolverine Watchmen, which are part of a movement in the United States called the Boogaloo Movement. It's a national militia that's actually seeking to incite the second civil war in this country and perpetrates acts of domestic terrorism. So what we saw here in this particular case is really part and parcel with the business model of such militia and, and, and such groups of domestic terrorists. So uh, nothing surprising here, but a great piece of law enforcement collaboration between our federal, state, and, and, uh, and local authorities in preemptively making sure that they mitigated this, what right. would have been a catastrophic event. Now, Paul, I know that uh, the FBI has been criticized in the last few years for not paying enough attention to militias and things like that. Does this signify, perhaps, that that's changing? You know what it is, Simi? I I tell you that intelligence gathering is key uh, for all law enforcement. I mean, clearly you see that. uh, I mean, when you look at at Canada, the OCMP, one of the greatest intelligence gathering organizations in law enforcement and government in the world, uh, you you see the same thing here with with us with respect to the FBI. Uh, The problem that we have had is not so much that they have been reluctant to do so, but the lack of bodies and, and the manner in which the Bureau, as well as now, with local law enforcement in the country, it was 63% down in, in law enforcement applications. So there just aren't enough bodies to do what we need them to do. Uh, this was a really good case of collaboration, though, Simi. It was a good case, really, where the public could see how well this system is supposed to work uh, by the use of intelligence gathering and focusing on groups like this. Do you think it's also a wake-up call, though, for other states, perhaps, to take these kinds of threats potentially more seriously? I would like to say that, Simi. I would certainly like to say that. I, unfortunately, I don't, I don't think that it will be because culturally we tend to be really good at, at wake-up calls in the United States, but we tend to be even better at sticking our heads in the sand. So I think that this will wake people up for today, tomorrow, uh, and by the time Monday comes around, it'll be old news. And I, 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 I hate to say that. But that's really the accuracy. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of sad. When like, I was reading about this, uh, like all thirteen people, and it, it was really extensive. Like the way they were planning, they trained as well. Apparently, they're well trained. Simi, they're well trained. They're, they're well trained in in recruitment and selection and training. They're well trained in assimilating in, uh, situations and going through scenario training to fundraising. Um, as, as well as as well as hiring subject matter experts to bring into their movement, so they know how to try as best to gather intelligence on law enforcement, target law enforcement, slow them down, and be able to identify confidential informants in their ranks. So this is not 
you know, an immature movement. This is a mature movement. It's a well-organized machine, and it's really going to require sophisticated law enforcement on an ongoing basis Mm -hmm. to preemptively mitigate. Paul, thank you very much for your time today. Yes, ma'am. Always a pleasure. It's Paul Violas, our CBS uh, reporter and analyst, talking about this case out of Michigan where 13 people have been charged in what law authorities allege is quite extensive plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, uh, and essentially their their idea was to put her on trial, and I put that in quotation marks, for treason, and that is because of lockdown measures, because of dealing with COVID-19, and they had they were training for it, as Paul pointed out there. It's really an extensive operation, and I'm sure if you read up on it, you think, well, how did it get so far along? Uh, but yeah, 13 people facing charges now, and a long list of them. All right, let's talk COVID-19 numbers, not just ours here in Canada, because as I said earlier with Gord, Ontario is reporting its highest ever number of new cases. Uh, Today, they're expected to be uh, above 900, which is huge. In BC, we're hovering around uh, 110 was yesterday, 115 was the day before. We've kind of been in that area now for the last week or so. Meanwhile, around the world, the World Health Organization is reporting the most new infections in one day. And now we're hearing that European countries also struggling to get a handle on this once again. So joining us now is Shane Woodford, freelancer in Denmark, of course, formerly here of CKNW. Good morning, Shane. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, tell me what's happening over there, because it sounds like those numbers are going up, up, up. Yeah, it, uh, it's actually kind of scary. Uh, numbers here across Europe have gone through the roof in the space of the last month. Uh, some sharper uh, upward trajectories than others. Uh, England or the United Kingdom, uh, they've seen numbers there, Simi, more than uh, well, it's doubled in about a week and a bit. So uh, last week, for example, they were seeing, well, that, there was even a mistake last week. We thought they were doing six, 7,000 cases on their busiest days, which was concerning. Mm-hmm. And then on Monday of this week, we found out there was an Excel spreadsheet error. Uh, they somehow missed almost 16,000 cases Oof. in the system the previous week. So then those numbers that were six and 7,000 and concerning jumped up to 10 and 11,000 uh, the week previous. So that is full-on alarm bells. And then that was Monday's news. Tuesday, England recorded uh, a series of the highest ever t- uh, number of infections. It has seen 12,000 on Tuesday jumping to 14,000 the next day. And as of right now, they are now about 17,000 cases yesterday, by far the highest ever. And we're seeing a similar tale play out in France. uh, Spain's numbers are slowly starting to fall off. Uh, Yesterday, let's see, Netherlands, Romania, Poland, Czech Republic, Belgium, Slovakia, Austria, all recorded the most amount of daily new infections to date. So there's a wave, a second wave that is fully exploding across Europe right now. Yeah, what happened then? So was this what we've seen elsewhere? Is it was a loosening of restrictions, people getting back to normal, and then it crept up again? Yeah, that's really hard to say. Um, the sort of chatter that I'm seeing and, and kind of covering all of the COVID news coming out of Europe, it seems to be a combination of loosening up those um, border restrictions over mm-hmm. the summer when the numbers are really low, tourism, you know, trying to inject some some of that tourism economy back into the system. Everyone began to travel and, to, you know, jet around, and that may have played some kind of role in this and likely did. Then you combine back to school, probably some kind of an international student's, um, you know, part in that. 
the young kids ignoring and partying and all of that stuff we've talked about before. And it's kind of amounted to sort of uh, the beginning of what looks like it might be something of a perfect storm as we move into colder weather, yeah. more people inside, all that kind of stuff. So does it sound like there will be restrictions coming? Will there be more of a crackdown again? Yeah, those are uh, those are playing out differently across Europe. Uh, Italy, by the way, Italy and Germany, which have so far managed to avoid that large numbers explosion, Simi, over the last few days, they've seen their numbers spike up to levels not seen since the spring. So in Germany, there's been uh, restrictions. They're usually centering around crowd sizes like we have in Denmark. It varies from country to country. Uh, Italy's placed restrictions now on uh, like mandatory mask use everywhere. Uh, there's now mandatory COVID testing for people coming into the country from uh, a large number of countries, including the United Kingdom, stuff like that. So, uh, And it tends to be localized, and then depending on how much of a situation they have, then it kind of explodes nationally. But I, I know in England, for example, uh, they're levering restrictions and probably more coming based on, on the last set of numbers out yesterday. Right, but there was quite a bit of movement, wasn't there, Shane, between countries in Europe and even in the Scandinavian countries, which I know for us here yeah. just seems like crazy. Yeah, there was movement. The EU basically opened up to itself. They were super wary about, um, you know, the United States, Brazil, uh, back in the summer with those countries, along with India now, uh, were the main drivers of the coronavirus pandemic. And so mm-hmm. they kind of said, okay, listen, we want to have some kind of tourism. So, you know, we'll have this formula where we can travel internally with the, within the European Union, but we're super wary about, you know, countries X, Y, and Z, which are really enduring a heck of a uh, pandemic situation. So we're not going to let those guys in. Uh, and internally in the EU, there was that sort of formula. Every country looked at every other country's coronavirus numbers, hospitalizations, like a different batch of stats. And then literally week to week here, Simi, we have countries that jump from a yellow to an orange to a red. So uh, just yesterday, for example, Denmark said, okay, listen, we're really concerned about these nine areas of Sweden. Mm -hmm. Uh, We no longer recommend that Danes go there. And there's different components of that, like country to country across Europe. But people were still traveling. And the one thing that seems to be bugging people here, Simi, is you get this thing where it's, uh, I'll give you an example. Let's say Switzerland says, okay, we're really concerned about coronavirus infections in uh, Sweden and in Norway. So we're going to say you have to quarantine. Here's your list of restrictions, all the stuff you have to do if you want to come into our country, except business travelers are exempt. And that seems to play out in everything. Oh, here's all your restrictions, but business travelers are exempt. So bizarre. seeing more and more chatter, yeah. And I'm seeing more chatter saying, what's going on here? Why are they allowing business people to just travel unfettered? Yeah, that this, the, that kind of movement, I think, for us here in Canada with the border still closed, right? After all these months, it's like, yeah. wow, you're, it's almost like you were asking for trouble at that point. Yeah, by the way, the American numbers, which were coming down from their lofty heights, Simi, uh, a word of warning there, over the last three weeks, those have turned around and they're not jumping up, but they've steadily increased week to week. So you want to keep an eye on that. All right. Thanks very much, Shane. Always a pleasure. You stay safe. You too. That is Shane Woodford, freelancer in Denmark, of course, former CKNW reporter, letting us know what's going on in Europe as those numbers go back up, up and up. And I read a lot of the newspapers from the UK in particular And I was surprised to see how much travel there was, you know, back and forth. And people complaining about, oh, quarantine restrictions here. And I thought, this can't be good. 
But, you know, we've been so, we've tried to be so careful here. And from the emails and the response that we get, it sounds like an awful lot of people would like us to crack down even more on whatever travel that we do have already. All right, let's check in with Nikki Reitmeyer this morning. And she's got a great story for us. Because, Nikki, I have a feeling that everybody loves to hear about the koi. I think so anyways. I love hearing about the koi. I actually love hearing about all of Vancouver's kind of weird and odd creatures. Whatever we have these conversations, sometimes <laughs> well, there's a lot of those. The, the, the talking birds up at Bloodell Conservatory. <laughs> if anyone has weird and quirky local animal stories, please email them to me, Nikki at cknw.com, because we always love to hear them. The koi fish are now coming up in the news once again, because Vancouver's oldest koi, named Dragon Gate has just been relocated to Blodell Conservatory. So I had a chance to speak with Emily Schultz. She's the acting business team lead for Blodell Conservatory and Van Dusen Botanical Garden. And I asked her, who is Dragon Gate and how did he get such a cool name? Yeah, so Dragon Gate, um, he was donated to the city of Vancouver, actually, at Expo. From there, he went over to Dr. Sun Yat-sen Classical Chinese Garden. Uh, he lived there for a number of years, and he actually survived the river otter attacks in 2018 and 2019. And um, he was just rehomed, and so we're now welcoming him into the pond at Bloedel Conservatory. So he'll join all of our feathered friends and all the tropical plants at Bloedel. Is it true that he even has some scars on his back as a result of surviving one of those otter attacks? He does. He actually has quite a few scars on him. So he's definitely been a bit of an amazing feat um, surviving those attacks and he is one of the oldest known koi fish in Vancouver so he's actually 34 years old and very resilient clearly. How old do koi fish normally live? 34 seems like a really long time. Yeah, so as, as I mentioned, he is the oldest known koi fish in Vancouver at 34 years old. He measures over 60 centimeters long, but koi fish can actually live up to 100 years. Obviously, they live shorter lifespans when there's predators, um, which we saw at Dr. Sun Yat-sen. But at Bloedel Conservatory, obviously, it's a super safe environment. So we're hoping that he can live a long and happy life with us. Well, I'm sure that he'll be very happy at Bloedel Conservatory because he'll be amongst some of my favorite creatures in Metro Vancouver, and that is the talking birds that you guys have there. How have the talking birds been doing? The birds are doing really well. You know, when we were closed back in March, we did notice that they were a little bit lonely. Um, a lot of them, particularly the larger perch birds, they love interacting with visitors. As you mentioned, they love to talk to people. They'll dance. They'll do kind of similar mimicking movements for visitors. So they're just super happy to be seeing visitors and, and getting some entertainment and some interaction on a daily basis again. So for anyone who wants to visit Bloedel Conservatory right now to see this koi fish, Dragon Gate, or to see any of the, the talking birds, what do they need to know? Of course, things are going to be a little bit different because this is a pandemic. What should people know in advance before they visit? Yeah, so the visit is a little bit different. We have a lot of safety protocols in place for COVID-19. So we're limiting the number of visitors who are in the conservatory at any one time. So people will just need to go online in order to reserve a time slot when they will come to visit. And, um, and then we just have a one-way path. So we just ask that visitors, while they're inside, they maintain physical distance to make sure that it's safe for everybody else in the conservatory. And um, they can book their tickets online at blodellconservatory.ca. 
I have a feeling, Nikki, that Dragon Gate is going to be quite popular. Yeah, I think that's a really cool story. Eh? I mean, here we have Vancouver's oldest koi fish. You can, if you look closely enough, see the scars on his back from the otter attack that he survived. The not just one, but two otter attacks that he survived at Dr. Sun Yat Sun Garden. Yeah, and I, apparently I, I this koi has, Dragon Gate has like the marks on its back because it like barely escaped the otter. Yeah, exactly. So now you can see him up at uh, Bloodell Conservatory, which is great. But of course, as you heard Emily say there, you need to book uh, a viewing in advance to be able to get into Bloodell Conservatory. But of course, still very much worth seeing. And I love she said as well that the birds have been lonely since people haven't been able to come visit them recently. The talking birds in there who are quite animated seem to really enjoy having the presence of humans around. And they were a little lonely that there was no visitors to entertain them. So they seem to be a bit happier now. How many unique animal stories do you think there are around here you think there's some that we haven't heard about yet there's gotta be especially as we go out you know further out towards abbotsford towards chilliwack the goats on the roof over on vancouver island oh well known yeah well known is always one that i think about um geez you know i'd love to hear from people if they have any kind of quirky unique local animal stories that come to mind something that people can go visit can go see uh, again send us an email because i'd love to hear about it I'm sure everybody, like, you think your pet's unique, right? Like, I always tell stories about my cat. My dog is just so easygoing and lovely. My cat is the one who likes to sit on people's, like, the roof of their house. And so then people used to always knock on my door and say, did you know your cat's on the roof? And I'd say, yeah, and she knows it too. And she would deliberately sit there, like, so that everybody could kind of see her. So everybody, I think everybody has Aww. unique stories about one particular pet. But there's got to be some kind of legendary stories out there, I would think. Oh, absolutely. I know I'm just looking at my two dogs right now trying to think of have they done anything quirky, but they're they're oh, fast your asleep dogs right are now. Lovely. So. <laughs> well, they are. They're pretty cute. I, I won't lie. If I do say so myself, but they're totally passed out asleep right now. So <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're not really doing anything too exciting. And then again, I have an old golden retriever. So she spends most of her time sleeping, actually, now that I think about it. <laughs> well, your dogs are lovely, but I'm sure there's people out there with good stories. Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. If you've got a great animal story, a pet story, whatever, let's hear it. Let's hear about these unique animals of Metro Vancouver. This is an extremely serious issue that children face. It never goes away, and children have to live with it. You may remember, of course, the story of Amanda Todd's death. That was a real wake-up call for so many of us right across the country who didn't fully understand the extent the depth with which cyberbullying can really do so much harm and harm kids in particular. So there's a new film that documents the harm kids are suffering and exploring the ways of mitigating that risk. It was just released yesterday for World Mental Health Day. It's called Dark Cloud. We're joined now by one of the experts in the film. This is Dr. Shaheen Sharif, who's an anti-bullying and social media expert and researcher at McGill University. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Good morning. Thank you. Why did you think it was so important to participate in a project like this? Um, because I have worked uh, for the last uh, 20 years on looking at cyberbullying since its emergence. And so I have a good understanding and I remember Amanda's uh, situation very well in 2012. So um, uh, this is why I, I agreed to, to participate. Do you think anything has changed since the Amanda Todd story? Um, you know, things have changed in a different way. Um, uh, since the emergence of social media um, in 2004, um, 
initially researchers were looking specifically at the behavior of kids online and the main concerns were relating to uh, the behavior of kids online, adolescents and teens um, and uh, cyberbullying. Unfortunately, now in 2020, um, we're looking at um, prolific uh, cyberbullying and uh, hate posts and uh, divisive um, uh, communication online by adults. And I'm very concerned that this is what is filtering down to young people because um, it is modeled and then it's internalized by young people. So regrettably, um, we have not made much progress. So not only did perhaps kids not learn that message, now they're seeing their parents behave the same way? Um, Some parents, um, and it's not just about kids and parents. It's about society in general. For example, if you look at the official sanctioning by politicians um, talking about a specific leader down south um, who uses uh, Twitter to uh, proliferate hate and divisiveness, um, you know, it's, it's, it's promoted a lot of um, um, online uh, uncivil. Uh, I mean, it's not, no longer civil mm-hmm. online. Um, and as a society, we've changed. I mean, I think in Canada, we're, we're still fairly polite and civil and kind. Um, but um, young people have exposure to uh, the online context. Um, you know, we were, lo- we've, were looking at some research that uh, children's online access to pornography and how normalized uh, sexual violence is online. And kids are exposed to all of this. So it's a real concern. Has the cyberbullying among kids changed at all? Because we certainly did a lot of talk about it. We still do a lot of talk about it, right? We get involved in the schools to, to talk about it, but has it changed their behavior at all? Um, you know, I think um, a lot of it is, is the same. Young people, one of the things that they've engaged in uh, is uh, sexting. And uh, sex, sexting among kids has become the sort of new flirty fun um, uh, that, you know, compared to our uh, older people's adolescence. Um, the problem is that uh, when young people are sending intimate images uh, to friends and peers in trust, and that is then posted online uh, to embarrass uh, the, the, the sender, um, this becomes sort of a demeaning, dehumanizing uh, way of, uh, you know, enjoyment. And we had uh, done some research with uh, young people, even kids in grade eight, and uh, we had asked them um, why they would post something online that someone had sent them in trust. And 60% of them had said they'll do it uh, to make their friends laugh. So peer approval is hmm. is really significant. Wow, that is so disturbing. Uh, Dr. Sherif, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you very much. That is Dr. Shaheen Sherif, who's an anti-bullying and social media expert, researcher at McGill University, and one of the participants in a new film that documents the harms that kids are suffering when it comes to cyberbullying. It's called Dark Cloud. It was released yesterday on World Mental Health Day, and it does, of course, talk about the death of Amanda Todd in there. I can't believe it was back in 2012. It seems like just yesterday, but we're talking eight years ago now. And the saddest part being that we, we haven't fully learned the lessons, not just kids, but adults as well that we're still seeing on social media that kind of bullying and aggressive tactics that you would have hoped have gone away years ago. And as Dr. Scherf pointed out, they have not.
This is not to go in and throw people out and see what we saw at Crab Park. There has to be some middle ground here, and it's the political will to to meet in the middle and, and do what's right for the people. So that is Vancouver City Councilor Rebecca Bly. Now, Council unanimously approved a massive $30 million housing action plan last night. What will it do, though, and will it be enough? Our guest is Fiona York, an advocate for people experiencing homelessness in Vancouver. Joining us now, good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. What do you think? Will this be enough? Well, um, so we saw this motion coming out of uh, a a proposal in mid-September about uh, five or so different options that were all temporary and all aimed at uh, targeting people who are homeless and people staying in tent cities and in Strathcona Park. And the one that was put forward as a recommendation by the mayor was the one around uh, SROs, hotels, and uh, city uh, finding properties to lease right. and to purchase to get people into uh, into um, housing. Now, one of the issues that came out last night was that there was an additional amendment uh, that came from a couple of the councillors around also including shelters, and that was an immediate uh, target at um, aimed at having people um, specifically from Strathcona Park into the shelters immediately. And so we're seeing that while um, this motion is being framed as something that's completely different, that's a compassionate, that are new options for people, that's sort of a sea change, that's helping to uh, you know actually make some changes about how we work with people who are homeless, we're seeing again that the options that are being presented are temporary, uh, they're punitive in some cases, they're shelters, they're aimed at reducing uh, or targeting a specific population. Um, there's talk about um, how this is intended for 750 people out of so many more who are homeless. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's sort of uh, creating this magical number of 750 who are truly homeless or truly unsheltered. So it's really perpetuating some very damaging narratives rather than being compassionate, rather than finding housing for people, rather than finding permanent solutions. Um, I understand that some of it is uh, intended to work towards leveraging some federal funding and, and provincial funding and getting people into the permanent housing. But these options that have been put on the table with this particular motion are, again, just you know some very damaging stereotypes and narratives around people who are homeless right. and only offering those temporary solutions. So then what would work here? Because we, you know, we're getting into cold weather and I don't think anybody wants to see this situation continue. So I, I think some of the things that we would rather see is that um, again, with uh, as with Oppenheimer Park, there was a, a specific effort to target people staying in the park as opposed to everybody who's homeless. Um, so when we're concerned about weather, we should be concerned about everybody who's homeless and those who are on the streets, uh, those who are staying in other parks around the city, and maybe just you know a couple of people here and there in various parks. We know that it's over 100 parks where people are actually stay, um, and they don't have the benefits of being in a tent city where there's some. Uh, there's some community, there's some donations, there's community support, there's some structure, there's a sacred fire, there's cultural support. Um, so, you know, seeing some measures that are actually targeted to the entire homeless population, which is closer to 2,500 or more, the numbers are much higher than the homeless discount shows because of uh, issues relating to the pandemic and COVID. So really addressing some of those issues, um, addressing those four crises that we actually, uh, as presented by city staff at the homeless discount report, which is the overdose crisis, the pandemic, the homelessness crisis, and racism, so intergenerational inter, uh, effects of colonialism in there as well. So actually addressing those, um, what we had talked about for uh, Tent City or any kind of housing is uh, 
solutions or options that are Indigenous-led, that are trauma-informed, that are culturally safe, that are peer-led, that are community-supported, and lastly, that are government-resourced. But what does that look like, Fiona? I think people will say, yes, let's do that because we need to get, you know, people housed, we need to help them. But what do all those things actually, in a concrete form, look like? So if we're... Obviously, everything should be working towards permanent housing, but any other options on the table. One thing is the lack of consultation. So to get there, one of the big steps would be consultation with people who are actually impacted. How do we get there? Um, we didn't see any of that with any of these motions. There is really no consultation about what that could look like. Um, some of it might be supporting where people are right now rather than if one more displacement going into shelters. We know people, you know, really struggle with the idea of being in shelters. It's a daily displacement. It's people being moved along every day. Um, so what about just not criminalizing people who are on the street already, not making the move, not making the move from parks every single day, those who are not in Strathcona Park? So just getting away from framing things in that narrative, doing some true consultation about what we would look like and moving away from shelters, the really temporary things, um, going to the, the more permanent solutions, the hotels, purchasing property, hotels that maybe could turn into something permanent, as we've seen recently. But even with those, the ones from Oppenheimer Park, the hotels were purchased once they became part of the permanent housing stock, they actually became uh, SROs. So rather than just perpetuating the cycle of SROs and shelter rate and people who are not actually tenants, or they don't have the full rights of tenants, they're actually under the Shelter Act, um, moving away from those, some of those narratives and being a little bit more respectful about consulting with people, what would work for them, and a little bit more independence, and then uh, well, again, framing the, the Indigenous-led, the matriarchs, and, and uh, structures that we might have in place already in some situations. What would work for them then? If they buy these hotels, because that's certainly part of this program, then how do you make sure when that hotel is bought and you move people into it, that it doesn't turn into, as you point out, the negative side of the SROs? Mm -hmm. So rather than um, the the ones that were purchased recently, um, people were signing uh, when it became... For example, the Howard Johnson became the Lubat, so now it's a, it's an SRO. So rather than turning it into an SRO that's highly managed uh, through supportive housing or it's, uh, it's, there is a lot of the restrictions, like guest restrictions and the ID, showing ID at the door, um, having the, the small spaces, having, uh, in some cases, shared facilities. So some of the properties that were purchased are actually um, hostels, so they're not hotels with independent living situations. Mm-hmm. Um, so putting them, rather than into the shelter uh, program, having them in as uh, regular tenancies, so people are actually living independently, um, and they're, they don't have that kind of surveillance. Uh, we know that right now we have people staying in South Kona Park and people who are homeless elsewhere who are just trying to have access to their families again or have their families back. So no type of SRO situation where people under 18 can't even be on the premises is going to work for people who are trying to get their families back. So some of these options that are being presented are just simply not conducive to family reunification and some of the needs that people have. Right, but, but this again, has got to be a step forward, though, Fiona, right? Like, like this is something, isn't it? Um, it is. It's something that's being offered, but it's just done in such a way that it's so damaging with so many narratives. And is that is it truly going to turn into permanent housing? Because it's so clearly targeting the 750 people and people staying in the park, that's that's a visi- the very visible population. So instead of going moving to everybody who's homeless and all those who are most vulnerable, if we're simply targeting those who are most visible... Is there what is going to happen after that? Is that really going to transition into permanent housing? Because then, there if they're, you know, in these shelters, which 
just mean that you don't see people every day, although, of course, they're being displaced and then, you know, having to, to move every single day. Is there really going to be right. that push for the permanent housing? Okay. Fiona, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Fiona York, advocate for people experiencing homelessness in Vancouver. Later on in the show, we're going to be talking with Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. I know they're happy that Vancouver City Council unanimously approved this $30 million, but i got to tell you when, you, when you hear and have conversations like that, you wonder, it's like, it's like going around in circles, right? What can we actually do? Where is this money going to go? And how can we get both sides happy with some progress being made? I don't know. I still don't hear those steps. Well, we know the Vancouver Aquarium has had an incredibly tough time during the pandemic. One of the little bright spots has been this collaboration that they have done that is ongoing with the Vancouver Whitecaps. Remember the masks that they produced together? So incredibly successful. Well, that resulted in a couple of million dollars that allowed the aquarium to feed the animals during these tough times. So pretty essential. They have another new collaboration to tell us all about. Joining us now is Mackenzie Neal, Director of Animal Care at the Vancouver Aquarium. Mackenzie, thank you for joining us. Oh, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Well, are you bracing yourself for this new one? Oh, I'm really, really excited um, that Joey's going to get his own new face mask. (laughs) Now, who is Joey? Joey is our newest sea otter at the aquarium. Um, He was rescued at the beginning of July and brought into our Marine Mammal Rescue Center, where he's been growing and thriving. And then he's been transferred to the, the Vancouver Aquarium and he's been here ever since, and so we're we're super happy to share his story. Okay, and so what does it take to look after Joey? Well, as a newborn pup, a very young pup, he was estimated about 10 days old when he was found. Um, normally for the six months of his life, first six months, his mother would be looking after him, so obviously he didn't have that. So it, we looked after him, and we had at least one staff member and one volunteer caring for Joey 24 hours a day for the past three months. Um, and it's an ongoing 24-7 care for him. Okay, so this special edition mask is, what does this mean? Like, how is Joey going to show up on these masks? Well, there's two different versions of the masks, um, and it has his cute little furry face on um, each one of them. And we're just super happy to be partnering again with the White Caps and super grateful for their ongoing support as well as community support because obviously this means a lot to us. The masks have been one of our top selling products um, and we we still need lots of help. Yeah, now Joey's been pretty popular online, right? Like people can watch what he's doing? <laughs> he does. Joey has his own webcam. Um, Adorable. And any, any given time, there's at least a thousand people watching worldwide from all over the world. Um, and we've just had such great feedback from people. He's really become kind of a support animal for people because um, right now life is hard this year everywhere. Um, and everyone's looking for that really good moment, something that makes them smile. And he's been able to bring this to so many people. So that's awesome that people can check this out. And I assume that these masks, Mackenzie, are going to be very popular. Where is the money going to go? Well, all the um, the money that all the proceeds from the masks go to the Vancouver Aquarium and the Ocean Wise Conservation Association. And it goes to help support the animal care because obviously, even though our doors are closed to visitors right now, uh, the animal care never stops. Yeah. We are still here 24 um, seven. It, it takes a lot to care for these animals and to feed them. Um, and that hasn't changed since we've closed our doors. So um, it really means a lot to us. 
Okay, and when are they going to go on sale? They are going on sale today. Um, you can buy them from the Vancouver Aquarium shop at vanaquashop.org or from the White Caps official store. Okay, and there's only a limited number, right? Like you're gonna, they're going to sell out and then they're going to be restocked, so people have to, might have to be a little patient. It is. It's a limited edition, so and I suspect that they're going to go very quickly. So well, yeah. I encourage everybody to to go today and take a look. Oh, I will definitely do that. Now, what is also the live stream for Joey if we want to check out what he's up to? Uh, so the live stream can is available on our, on the, the aquarium's website as well, um, or you can check him out on YouTube on under Joey Cam. All right. Thanks so much, Mackenzie, and listen. Good luck. Thank you so much. That is Mackenzie Neal, Director of Animal Care at the Vancouver Aquarium, uh, talking about Joey. And, of course, the live stream is very popular there. Uh, But they do have these limited edition masks coming out this morning, once again in collaboration with the Vancouver Whitecaps. I think there's only about 14,000 or so, and you can imagine they're probably going to go pretty quickly. So check that out online. We're getting to the point now where really it's going to have to be new hiring, people who are permanently laid off finding new employers. Okay, that was Brendan Bernard. But first of all, how great was that, Eddie Murphy? Flash from the past, right? Great song. Okay, yes, that's Brendan Bernard, Indeed Hiring Lab economist. He gave us a preview of the job numbers that came out this morning. But let's break down those September labor force numbers with the help of Ken Peacock, who's the chief economist and vice president at the Business Council of BC. Good morning, Ken. Good morning, Simi. How are you this morning? I am good, thank you. I imagine you're pretty good. Those numbers sounded positive. But they're they're good numbers, yeah. If we if we kind of go through this labor force release, there there's a lot of good news. Um, I just would say it's, we still have to have context, but but really, uh, you look at the job gains, uh, fifty five thousand in BC in September. That's a, that's a good result, especially when you consider it follows a, a gain of just fifteen thousand in, in August. So, you know, almost four times as many in September. That's a positive reading. Right. And I know that BC does seem to be lagging a little bit, but given what we're seeing happening in Ontario and Quebec right now, BC does seem to be holding its own. Uh, Are you talking in terms of the virus or in terms of employment? Well, in terms of the virus, because I know that Ontario, they're announcing a bunch more closures today and more lockdowns. And at least on that front, BC has managed to stay fairly steady. Yeah, and I would say I would say to your listeners that BC has done a great job right from the beginning through this whole thing. Exactly. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't. The, the good results in the, on the health front don't always translate into the, the same thing on the employment front, because as everybody knows, the job market has been hard hit, and it's been hard hit right across Canada, almost irrespective of the degree of lockdown. So, some of the, I noticed that most of those jobs are full time jobs. That seems pretty promising. Yeah, this is goodness. So one of the characteristics of, of the recovery in jobs so far um, in, in recent months is that they've been absolutely heavily skewed towards part-time employment. And this is the first month that we've seen a very, very solid uh, increase in full-time employment. So if we had 40,000 full-time jobs out of the 55,000 total. And like I said, that's the first time we've seen any, any sort of significant gain in, in, in rehiring and, and maybe a new, new employment, new jobs right. in the full-time segment. Uh, Ken, are there still kind of some sectors that you're concerned about? Yeah, it's interesting. We, um, you know, well, one, one thing that's interesting to me is the, the regional dichotomy. Uh, it, it, the breakdown between the metro area, the big metro Vancouver, and then the other metro, smaller metro regions in, in the province, and then what I would call the rest of the BC is, is very interesting. We did see job gains in Metro Vancouver, 
again, about half of the total increase. And we saw gains in the three smaller metro regions, Victoria, Kelowna, and Abbotsford. But the rest of BC, if we look at the, the more rural manufacturing resource-based economy, economies around the province, employment is actually up in that rest of BC uh, region from February. It's up almost 3%. Whereas in the metro regions, in Metro Vancouver, employment from February is still down 10%. And in the three smaller uh, smaller ones, it's down between 5 and 6%. So there really is some resilience uh, in the more rural and, and resource-dependent uh, regions of this province. That's good. What about construction? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's interesting you asked that one. Yeah, right now, construction... Uh, we actually saw a setback in the number of people working in the construction industry, and and surprise, I'm a little surprised by this. If if we look across the industry sectors, construction in in terms of regaining uh, jobs lost since February is is one of the industries and sectors that is that is lagging. Yeah. So so it looks like just the uncertainty has has prompted some pullback in in planned building and whatnot. It, it, it's a bit surprising the construction one because we never here in BC shut down the construction sector. Yeah, do you is that a spot for concern? Do you think, Ken, in in the months ahead, because we slow down building, like developers put those projects on hold, and yet the housing market is really buoyant. Right, right. So the thing with the construction industry is the housing market is buoyant, absolutely, and that residential housing construction generates a lot of employment. But there's also this non-residential segment, which which where there's a lot of jobs created, and, and that is. Uh, commercial buildings, industrial buildings and structures, and then big engineering projects and you know, things like bridges and roads and whatnot. So uh, my sense is because the residential construction segment has held up, this is probably a slowdown more in that non-residential space. Just like I said, right. uh, you know, companies uncertain about the future, just at a minimum delaying projects and, and perhaps postponing them uh, for, for several years. It's, it's, it's a bit of a wait and see situation. It certainly is for all of us. Ken, thank you. You're very welcome. It's Ken Peacock, Chief Economist and Vice President of the Business Council of BC, talking about the highlights and a few of the lowlights there of the jobs numbers out for September. Overall, not not too bad, actually, for all of Canada. There's certainly uh, some great numbers there, but also some room for improvement. As you've been hearing in the news, Vancouver City Council unanimously approved a $30 million emergency COVID-19 housing action plan. It's kind of nice to hear that they did something unanimously. Also nice to hear that there's some form of action being taken on homelessness. But what does it really mean? Where is this money going to go? Will it help to actually, you know, move steps forward to fixing the homelessness problem? Joining us now is Mayor Kennedy Stewart from Vancouver to talk about what this entails. Thank you very much for joining us. Great. Uh, thanks for having me. You must be pretty happy that other councillors got on board for this. Yeah, it was really a, a group effort. I mean... You know, uh, kind of got the ball rolling with motions and special meetings, which is kind of, you know, a power that I have under the mayor. But then council all came together and approved this uh, package, which, of course, has to be supplemented with provincial and, and federal funding, and I, which I'm confident it will be. But it's a very good immediate start. So I'm very, very happy with the, yesterday's results. So what does immediate start mean? Where is this going and when? Yeah, so there's, you know, there's it's it's a pretty uh, entrenched problem we have here with, with homelessness and uh, so this plan outlines kind of immediate, uh, medium, and long-term steps. So immediately, for example, uh, we uh, approved uh, looking at two city properties, uh, the 24, uh, the Hotel and 2400 Kingsway and the Jericho Hostel, which are both on the city land. 
to see if we can secure those for uh, immediate uh, immediate housing, which would uh, put a dent uh, really right away uh, in what we're seeing around mainly the northern part of the city. Uh, and then moving to uh, either lease or purchase uh, you know, vacant um, hotels or floors of hotels or um, uh, single-room occupancy right. hotels that would have to be refurbished. Will there be supports that go along with this, though, or are we just turning more buildings into SROs? Yeah, I mean, we also approved part of that would be wraparound supports, although, again, those are very difficult for the city to maintain uh, because, really, these are the responsibilities of the province, both the, uh, you know, really the Ministry of Health and uh, Social Services uh, but however, uh, we can't wait, uh, and we we so we allocated uh, we allocated money to provide wraparound services just to get things moving. Right. So, Mayor Stewart, does that mean that people will go into these encampments where these people are, are tenting and ask them, like, where do you want to go? What can we get for you? What will help? Yeah, I think that's really the intent here. Uh, part of the uh, you know process is that we had uh, you know over the last two days we've had almost. I would say over 20 hours of council meetings, a lot of that is people uh, calling in and telling us their stories. And you can hear, you know, you can hear the range of help that people need and how, you know, some are going to need a family unit because we have we have families that are living on the street now because of COVID, because the folks have lost their job, uh, lost their jobs. Uh, but then we have folks that need help with mental health and addiction. So there, it really is about choices and this money kind of uh, enables us to get our plan rolling right now, but in the end, it's it's the it's the province and and feds that will uh, come in. And we know monies have been allocated. We're just uh, just in the process of uh, landing them here in the city. Right. So where will this start then? Will it start with the Strathcona encampment? Well, no. I mean, there's you know part of the motion was, of course, we recognize that the Strathcona encampment is uh you know has been very topical and in the news but we heard uh, callers from chinatown uh we heard uh, of course from yale town the west end so right across the north part of the city and really it's up to our expert staff and uh, staff from bc housing and vancouver coastal health to uh you know use their expertise and utilize these resources the best way uh, they can so I think uh, as soon as the units uh, become available, uh, then folks will be offered a chance to uh, to uh, uh, to move there. All right, Mayor Stewart, thank you for your time. We'll check back in on this. Okay, thank you. Kennedy Stewart, Mayor of Vancouver, talking about that $30 million plan approved by Vancouver City Council last night. And yes, we will be checking back in on it. Well, if we're playing that, it must be time for us to talk to our favorite outdoor design and lifestyle expert, Carson Arthur, who is on the line with us. Hi, Carson. Good morning. I'm so glad that this is not television, because when that music comes off, I just feel the need to dance. <laughs> yeah, nobody wants to see either you or me, I think, doing a little <laughs> dance on that. How's your garden looking? What are you doing with it right now? My garden's looking a little sad. I'm starting to pull out plants. It's sort of end of season. I've still got some beets and carrots, so very excited about those. And I, it's the end for tomatoes, right? Like, I still have tomatoes on the vine, but there's no way they're going to ripen at this point. So I should just, what, get rid of them? Well, no, actually, people always think that it's light levels that help tomatoes ripen. has nothing to do with sunlight for tomatoes. If you want those tomatoes to ripen, throw some banana peels down around the bottom of the plant. As the banana peels decompose, they release ethylene gas, and that makes your tomatoes ripen. Okay, because both myself (laughs) and our technical producer are having this tomato problem right now. We will do that. So what should we be doing right now when it comes to our yards and gardens? 
Well, there's a few things that you should not be doing, and this is the bigger conversation. First of all, if it's still green, do not prune it off. People are all thinking, oh, we're getting ready for fall. Let's get ahead of our fall jobs. And they're starting to cut down plants and trim trees and shrubs. If it's still green, the leaves are still producing energy for the roots below. So let's not do those at all. Let's leave them alone. The other thing you can be doing if you do want to get prepared is now's a perfect time to start pruning tree branches that might cause problems in the wintertime. So if you see any cracked branches right. or any dead branches, dead is dead. It's not coming back. Now is the time to get in there and prune it. Okay, I have a couple questions from people here too. So I should mention that if people have a question for Carson, they can either email me or they can give us a call, 604-280-9898. Let's see here. I have an email from Julie Carson who says, when should dahlias be dug up and what is the best way to store the bulbs over the winter? Yeah, again, that goes back to that green rule. Dahlias want to stay in place until the leaves start to turn yellow. Once the leaves turn yellow, that means the energy production is done. So you can pull up the whole bulb, prune off the stems, clean off as much of the wet moisture and roots around the roots of the soil, and put it in a cool, dry place in a paper bag is usually what I like until next spring, and then plant it again. So it sounds like, though, that it's a bit too early. Is that, do you think a lot of people jump the gun on this kind of stuff? They do, and it's not too early in certain areas. I know certain areas have already got some cold spells. Some of that uh, photosynthesis has already started to stop. So I don't like to tell everybody it's on this date because Mother Nature is going to dictate for your area when it's the right time. So look for the green leaving the leaves. That's going to be your indicator. Okay, and you've also got some advice on how to prune those trees and shrubs, right? Right. Well... So there's two different types of pruners that are out there. There's bypass pruners, which means the blade goes past the actual shield at the bottom. That type of pruner is perfect for live wood because it cleanly cuts. It doesn't cause any tissue damage. Then there's anvil pruners where the blade actually stops on the shield and it's got more of a crushing motion. That's used for dead wood. And the other thing that I'm telling people now is please be careful when you're using any of the new pole pruners. I know Craftsman's got some new pole pruners out there that are being snapped up like crazy because you can get up 16 feet with these pole pruners, but you're still looking up at them. So make sure you're wearing your glasses, your safety gear when you're out doing your pruning because all that stuff's going to be coming down, even though, I mean, these types of tools are really making our lives that much easier. Okay, and is there rules about when to prune, when not to prune? Again, If the leaves are green, leave it be. They're generating that energy. It's so important. If it's dead, get it out of there. No problem. If it's fruit trees or any trees that are uh, producing flowers, best to prune those when the leaves are completely falling off and the tree has gone dormant. I even tell people, wait till like February when it's miserable outside. That's when those trees like to be pruned. Really? Okay. So Jason has emailed me wanting to know what is the best time of year to prune back smaller trees like dogwood and cherry? Yeah, if it's a flowering tree, um, you usually want to prune it three weeks after it's finished flowering. Many of the smaller flowering trees, like rhododendrons and uh, hydrangeas, they actually take a full year to set flowering buds on several of those varieties. So if you prune them right after they're done flowering, you know that it's going to have the time to regrow new buds for next year. With dogwoods and other types of shrubs like that that aren't necessarily purchased for flowers but more for the branches, you can give them a light prune at any given time. Just don't remove more than one-third of the shrub per season. 
Okay, one third of the shrub per season. That is good advice. Let's see, Barbara has written me. Barbara lives in a condo, Carson, and she said that she has a beautiful purple fountain grass planted in a pot. And she said, is there any way that I can prepare it to survive the winter and return it to its glorious self next spring? Not a chance. Oh, oh that's so <laughs> <She's>, sad. <laughs> yeah, she's got purple fountain ryegrass. And in certain areas, you can definitely overwinter it. For a condominium, though, out in the elements, outside, your percentage of being able to rescue that or keep it going for next year is so incredibly low. So what I like to tell people is enjoy it. It's beautiful with your fall flowering kale and some pumpkins, but compost it later because the reality is it's just not going to live in its glory for too long. That's so sad. Uh, Linda wrote to say Happy Thanksgiving. She said, I would like to move some lavender, some Cornus Alba, some cranberry cotton. What is that? Cotton Easter? And two year old, Aster, yeah. Yeah, okay. And two-year-old blueberry bushes. Should I do it now or wait until spring? Well, wow, and this is a great conversation because technically you can absolutely do it now. But I always tell people if you have the ability to wait for spring, that is so much better. When we are transplanting our plants, we dig them out of the ground. We lose a lot of the very fine roots, the water roots out of off the plant. It just happens with the soil. It pulls it off when it falls off. And it takes a plant a while to regrow those. So then when you're transplanting in the fall, the first thing the plant wants to do is regrow those roots. So it takes some of the energy that it's stored to try and regrowing the roots. And when it's cold soil, it's hard for it. Much better in the spring, it has the ability to regrow the roots and still then generate lots more energy to be stored in those roots for the following season. All right, Carson, we've got a caller on the line here who has a question for you. Hi there. Hi, Simi. It's Nikki Reitmeyer oh, calling. Oh, jeez, Nikki. What's going on? <laughs> you could have just emailed me. What's the question? <laughs> First time caller, long time listener. <laughs> I, have, I have a hosta on my patio in a pot, and I'm wondering, should I bring it inside for the winter? Definitely not. No, don't bring it inside. Leave it outside in the pot. If you're really worried about it, you can actually put the pot in the ground. So just dig a hole and set the whole pot down in the ground. If you don't have that available, the hostel will probably be fine. But if you bring it indoors, it won't go through its dormant period properly. And that's really going to screw your plant up. Ah, okay. Leave it out there, Nikki, by its all, all by its lonesome. Great advice. I love this segment, guys. Thanks, Nikki. <laughs> okay. So Carson, that brings up another question too about like fertilizing and things. Is, is, did you fertilize anything at this time of year or no? So the one danger that people have is they often will fertilize with what's left over, the bag that they bought in the spring, and they think, well, I'll just throw that on the lawn. Spring fertilizer has high nitrogen, that first number, and nitrogen is used in leaf development. If you fertilize your fall plants with nitrogen, it really gets them out of whack because they're now saying, okay, we've got to produce leaves when they should be actually going to sleep. So you can fertilize in the fall looking for fertilizers that have high middle or high last number. That's more for root development or for overall health. Personally, though, I like to put down garden compost or manure at this time of year because what that does is it works its way into the soil throughout the season, throughout winter, and it adds more fiber, which is more water retention for spring when the plants really need it. Okay, I can't believe how much time has flown by, Carson, but we're already out of time. you got to come back soon, okay? I will, I promise. Anytime you want me, you just call. Okay, thanks, Carson.
Thank you. That is Carson Arthur, outdoor design and lifestyle expert. Of course, you can catch him on HGTV as well. We love to catch him here on the show because you guys never disappoint with such great gardening questions. And don't worry, if you missed him this time, you know what? He'll answer your emails, by the way. If you just, you can email me if you want, simi at cknw.com with your gardening question, and I'll pass them on to him. But he answers everybody.